Once upon a time, there was a dog. A dog. A dog. A dog. A dog. Basically, a dog. A dog. Oh, just a basically a common average dog. Just a dog. Nothing, nothing special about it. Nothing unspecial about it either. There's nothing. There's no need to go assessing every dog you see and telling everyone, is this a special dog or a, just a normal, common, commonplace, nondescript dog? Um, and by the way, if it, if it turns out that it's a nondescript dog and you describe it as a nondescript dog, you're contradicting yourself then because it's... Descript by the very fact of it being nondescript. Being nondescript is a feature of a dog, and if the dog has a feature that stands out by which you can describe it, then that's not nondescript. As not a nondescript, and not a real nondescript dog would be a dog. Well, I don't know. Probably there's probably no such thing as a nondescript dog. And don't take that as meaning that all dogs are interesting and fascinating. No, there's just there's no such thing as a nondescript dog and it's only it's more to do with language than and logic than anything else it doesn't mean dogs are special no it just means there's no such thing as a nondescript dog just because it's just illogical there's no logical basis by which a dog would be nondescript because if a dog is nondescript then it's a nondescript dog and it has the characteristic of being nondescript which makes it descript so Dogs walk into a bar. One of the dogs goes straight up to the bar counter and says, Hello, can I have a pint of your finest dog food, please? And the man behind the bar says, Certainly, sir, will Guinness do? And the dog says, I don't know. I don't know what dog food is. What even is dog food? It's just some stuff that comes in a bag or a can and you pour it onto a bowl. Can you do that with Guinness? Can you get Guinness in a bag or a can and pour it onto a bowl? And the man behind the bar says, well, you can get it in a can, but this is a pub and we have draft Guinness. Why would you? Why would you want to have a can when we have draft Guinness here? And the dog says, well, I don't know, maybe for convenience. Maybe for convenience. Maybe I want to bring some home with me. And the barman says, oh, I'm afraid not. We're not licensed to sell takeout Guinness here. We're only licensed to sell it for consumption on the premises. And the dog says, that's fine. That's fine. I was only looking for some dog food. I wasn't looking for Guinness in the first place. I'm a dog. I don't need to drink Guinness to be drunk as a dog because I'm already a dog. And the barman says, well, hold on now, though. You may already be a dog. If that doesn't mean you're drunk as a dog, automatically. It just means you're a dog. I don't, people say drunk. Do they even say drunk as a dog? I don't know. They say sick as a dog. Maybe you're confused. Are you thinking of the term sick as a dog, dog? And the dog says, oh, maybe I am. I thought it was a term drunk as a dog that people use. And I thought maybe you were thinking, if I just have non-alcoholic beverage here, I'll somehow be still the equivalent of drunk as a dog just by being a dog despite having had no alcohol and that's not really how it works at least i don't think it is but we're getting ahead of ourselves here i have to line my stomach first drunk as a dog or no drunk as a dog i need to have some dog food first so can i have a pint of your finest dog food please the man behind the bar says certainly sir would you like a little dram of whiskey is that sir that's quite good And the dog says, Sir, what in the name of Christ is wrong with you? He went, Would you like a dram of whiskey? I heard that's good. That's not something a bar. When does a barman say something like that? And the man behind the bar says, That's a good point. I suppose, uh, in answer to your question, when would a barman say something like that? I would be when there's a dog in front of him ordering some dog food in his bar. And it's got so fucking ridiculous that he's decided he may as well just say whatever he wants at random. Just random words. He may as well say purple dishwasher monkey nut cat. A monkey turnip cat. 
uh, face screen or something. Uh, make about as much sense as what's going on here, dog. You've taken dog. You've come in. You've been in here less than three minutes, and you've already removed all sense of common sense and normality and logic from this transaction. You have turned uh, my bar upside down. Uh, not in the way. I don't mean by running around like a bull in a china shop or whatever the dog, whatever the dog you will equivalent of a bull in a china shop is. No, you've managed to turn this place upside down metaphorically just by sitting here ordering a bowl of dog food. Which is quite an achievement. It's quite an achievement. I just don't know what to do with it in terms of making a segment on a podcast. Don't think it's going to be of any use really, to be perfectly honest. Don't think it's going to be of any use unless we, unless it goes somewhere after this. Uh, we seem to be having trouble getting, getting anything done today. Been sitting in here now in my bar stroke bare room uh, where I record my podcast stroke serve dogs with Guinness in my bar. I've been in here nearly an hour now and I've only done about 10 minutes of audio. I don't even know whether that's usable. You seem to be having trouble getting going today. Maybe you can help with that dog. Here are dog. Dogs like helping people. I've seen Lassie. Lassie and the, the littlest hobo uh, as well. The littlest hobo. That's that dog. Do you know what the littlest hobo is, dog? The littlest hobo. I should explain. Uh, not for you, because you're a dog. I don't need to explain things for a dog. But I'll explain it for the, for the listeners who've never seen the littlest hobo. The littlest hobo was a children's television series about a dog who went around, oh, went around helping people. It was a homeless dog and every day, every, every week you were turned up in some new town and help someone with something. And then be there be that little song that goes, there's a dog walking up down the street. And something, 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 maybe tomorrow I'll try and settle down. Until tomorrow I'll just keep moving on. That's what the littlest hobo is. There was Lassie as well, which would be considered the superior dog assistance program. But I don't know how well known it is worldwide. It was a, oh, Lassie was an Australian dog thing. It was a bit like Flipper. Except they had a dog instead of a whatever its flipper was. Flipper was a dolphin or a sea lion or something. And then there was Skippy. Skippy was a kangaroo. And then, wait, was Lassie Australian? I'm not sure now. Maybe, maybe you're confusing Lassie with the kangaroo. Possibly not. But no, I think the littlest hobo would be more well known internationally. So we'll go with the littlest hobo. I, the littlest, I don't know why it was called the littlest hobo. That seems a bit... Uh, maybe he was a bigger, maybe they being he was littlest as in like racist, but against little people. So the dog was prejudiced against little people. And for some reason, he put that in his title. He'd go around saying, hello, I'm the littlest hobo. I'm trying to be considerate now. So I'm saying up front that I'm littlest. So anyone who's little, you should avoid me unless, you, unless you're okay with being offended. I'm just, uh, and I don't even want to offend you. I just, uh. It's like a, oh, it's like I'm waving. It's like when you're a leper in the biblical times and they make you go around with a, waving a flag in front of you and ringing a bell saying, unclean, unclean. Well, I'm a bigot. I'm an anti-little people bigot and I'm a hobo. So I go around uh, ringing a bell and saying, uh, I'm littlest. If you're a little, uh, you, want, you want to stay away from me unless you want me to say extremely insulting littlest stuff. I can't help you understand. It's it's like a disease I have. I'm a bigot. But I'm the littlest hobo. So I also have other strings to my bow. Look, and that I help people in different towns every week. So that's why I get away with it. Uh, people in various towns decide, oh, he's only going to be in the town for one episode. And if his record is anything to go by, he's going to help someone out of some situation during the next 50 minutes minus commercials. So we'll put up with his littlest isms for now. And we'll just make him ring a bell saying, oh, I'm littlest, I'm littlest, as he goes on to the next town. Uh, of course a dog, a dog isn't going to just ring a bell. Because how does a dog ring a bell? Well, I'm not saying a dog can't ring a bell. If a dog is holding a bell in its mouth, 
and wringing it after every few feast to her walks. That's not going to be, the dog's not going to be me. I'm not explaining this very well. If you tell a dog that he needs to ring a bell every minute or two as it progresses along its route, uh, you can't just say, ring it now and then stop ringing it and then just carry the bell for a couple more minutes and then ring it again. No, no, the bell's going to get moved. Unless you know a dog who's done one of those courses where they teach you how to balance a book on your head, like they, like they used to do when they were when they were teaching women how to be posh people. And, uh, I don't know, I think people in palaces or something, they teach you how to balance a, a book on your head and that's for good posture. Well, if they could teach a dog, like the littlest hobo, how to hold a bell between rings and while walking, hold the bell its mouth and have it not ring until it needs to actively ring it, and then it could ring the bell every couple of minutes. But no, that's not possible, so the dog is just going to be ringing the bell by default all the time and if you're ringing a bell by default all the time then it just melts into the background the whole point of a bell or any instrument or sound is to distinguish it from the silence so you have a bit of silence and then you have bell ringing and then a bit more silence and then you go oh someone just rang a bell if he's ringing the bell continuously because it just rattles because he's carrying it in his mouth then you're just gonna go oh there's a continuous bell sound by default associated with that dog uh, I presume if there's something he needs to tell us, he'll therefore stop ringing it for a few seconds and that'll be the signal. Because the signal can't be that he's ringing the bell because he's just doing that by default all the time. That'd be like telling someone, if you need anything, stop breathing for a moment and that'll be the signal. No, it's not going to work at all. So that's how the littlest hobo will work. He'd help someone out in the town and he'd be there for just long enough to help them out. And they'll say, that dog, he's a littlest hobo. He's prejudiced against little people. So we'll make him warn the people in the next uh, village that he goes to that he's littlest. We'll make him have a song. And if he can't perform the song, we'll give him a name. We'll put a name on his collar. It'll say, littlest hobo. And then maybe when they press a button on the... Oh, we put a little message on his collar. And we'll press a... He might be going to some village where people can't read, so we'll put a recorded message that gets triggered when someone presses his collar. And it'll say, attention, this dog is littlest. He's as littlest as be damned. Uh, but we let him aware of it because he seems to be quite useful and he doesn't stay around too long. So it's, uh, so it's quite, we think on balance it's worth putting up with him for a, an hour or so in your village because he'll move on then. He'll move on then. He's quite a talented dog. Uh, the only one thing he can't do is carry a, carry a bell and ring it every couple of minutes and then have it not ring for the times between the rings. Uh, so that's how a bell, a bell isn't really going to work for him. So if it turns out that you're a town that has a lot of leprosy in it and the dog is likely to get leprosy, when you're sending him on to the next town, come up with something better than ringing a bell and shouting unclean because that's not going to work for the dog. Because as I say, you can't ring a bell. If you can't uh, not ring a bell between the bell rings, then a bell isn't going to work. You can't be just having the bell ringing continuously. Because that's the same as being silent continuously. It doesn't work as a signal. That's like if you had a lighthouse and you just left the light on and it wasn't flashing at all. You just had the light on and just shining all over the place in every direction all at once. No, that's just a, that's not a lighthouse at all. That's just basically the sun. We're not as powerful or useful. It's probably using up a lot more power than the sun as well. I know the sun uses up more power than anything else in the galaxy, but it's not power that we have to generate. It's getting the power free from wherever the sun is. What's the sun made of? Uh, something flammable, presumably. Is the moon made of something flammable? That's the question. Is the moon made of something flammable? Because if it is, it'll probably, well, not necessarily, probably, but be, it might go on fire one day, and then what happens? I, I suppose it depends on whether there's anyone on it. Is there anyone on the moon at the moment? I don't think so. But if we're on the moon one day, and it turns out that it's flammable, and we don't find out that it's flammable until... The, well, it's a good chance. If the moon turns out to be flammable, there's a good chance the only way we're going to find out about it is if we spend long enough on the moon. And maybe we have... We're going around with mobile phones or something that can trigger the fire. Or we have some chemicals or something that interact with whatever's on the moon and starts a fire. We're not going to know how flammable the stuff on the moon is until we spend a lot of time there. 
Uh, that's the issue. So the moon could be extremely flammable and we just don't know about it because we haven't spent enough time there. Last time we went up to the moon, we had a couple of men going around in these, oh, they're wrapped up in these bubbles, wrapped around their heads, these suits and bubbles. So they weren't really interacting with the moon at all. So for all we know, the moon could be something that the minute he touches through stone on it with your bare hand that goes on fire. It could be, it could be. We didn't test it. We went round. Oh, we went round with uh, overprotective. That's why we are. We're overprotective of our astronauts or they're not able to do any proper experimentation. Astronaut. I bet you there's a thing on the moon where as soon as you, as soon as you speak, the sound waves bounce out against the rock or something and the rock goes on fire. That could be. Because we aren't trapping all our sound waves within our suits and just transmitting them through the walkie-talkie system or wherever they have. So we weren't allowing the sound waves to freely travel around and explore the place. So that's an issue there. So that's the moon for you. And that's the littlest hobo for you as well. And basically the, the moon is on fire and the littlest hobo is a littlest cunt uh, but doesn't have leprosy. Into your head! We've a lot to get on with today. Items that need to be attended to. Issues that need to be addressed. Topics. Oh, topics. We've got lots and lots of topics. We're positively booming to the scenes with topics. We've got topics coming out of... Uh, topics coming out of Where's My Harmonica? Uh, I don't know where my harmonica is. I don't panic. It doesn't mean it's lost. Doesn't mean it's lost. If I say I don't know where the sky is, that doesn't mean the sky is falling in. It just means I don't know where the sky is at this particular moment. I haven't conducted a search for it. I haven't even looked out the window. It's not reasonable to expect to be able to see it when I'm shut in in this dungeon of a spare room with my back to the window and the curtains half closed, nothing in my view except the door of a toilet. No, no, you can't expect me to see the sky from here. But equally, you can't expect me to, to reasonably declare that the sky is missing just because I can't see it from my current vantage point. That's fairly likely that the sky is there where it always is. Uh, now, it's also very likely that it's not visible even from outside the house. Because in this country, the sky is often not visible from outside of your house. It's often obscured, not by darkness, it's obscured by clouds and stuff. Clouds and stuff, whatever else goes around in the sky. There's the sky here is covered in, well, the sky isn't covered in clouds because the clouds are under the sky. The sky isn't covered in anything. If you think of the sky as a roof, there's nothing on top of the roof. So it's as if you're in a greenhouse. The clouds are underneath the roof of the greenhouse obscuring the the roof which is the sky but that doesn't mean the roof is covered in clouds no no the cloud because the clouds are underneath it so if anything the sky is covering the clouds it's obscuring if the clouds were animate objects who could see then the clouds is view of outer space would be obscured by the sky or would it no that's not true though is it because the sky is just empty space surely you can see through it if you have the right viewing system i don't know probably doesn't really matter i'm just saying there's nothing the sky is never obscured by clouds it's just that the i mean it's never uh, covered by clouds even if it's obscured the sky could be completely blocked out from our view down here from a completely overcast sky and it could still be that the sky itself is not covered at all it could be nothing above the sky at all except empty space the sky is probably wondering what all the fuss is about the sky is going no they're saying i'm obscured they're saying the sky is obscured because of clouds or some crap but as far as I can see, no, it's not. I'm not obscured at all. I'm perfectly happy up here. There's nothing above me except empty space. Admittedly, it's a bit hard to see at night, but there's nothing to see. It's just empty space for millions and millions and millions of miles. If you were to keep going for a few million miles after you go up above the clouds, after you emerge from above the clouds, and then go up through the sky and go up and up and up and up and up and up and up. You could go for billions of miles and still not encounter anything, unless you happen to point yourself at the nearest planet. 
And even then, it'll be a uh, hundred million miles or something. It's a long way. Things are a long way away once you get up outside of the sky. The last thing that's going to be on your mind, I can tell you, when you're flying through space is whether the sky is obscured by clouds looking from underneath. Because you're not looking at it from underneath anymore. You're looking at it from overneath. You're looking at it from overneath. You're looking at it. Ah, you get the general idea. So I suppose now that you mention it, if you're going travelling in space, at some point you're going to have to come back. And at some point you're going to have to go down through the sky and then down through the clouds that are obscuring it from underneath. And at that point you're going to think, do you want a clear cloudless spot to land in? Because I'm probably going to drop. I'm probably going to be in some little metal tin can thing that's got a parachute attached to it and it's probably going to land in the sea or something. And I'm going to want to be found. So I better be damn sure that Christ has held that they can find me. But even then, the clouds wouldn't matter then. Unless the clouds are covering the whole sea from the ground up, from the surface of the water right up to space. And you would have to be all filled with clouds. The only place the cloud is obscuring the view of you from is from above the cloud. So if they're trying to spot you from above the clouds, maybe be using a satellite. That's the irony of it. When you go up in space, so you travel all the way to the moon and then you travel all the way back and then you land in your parachute in the middle of the sea. They use satellites, I assume, to locate you so they can come and rescue you. They say, oh, he's landed, he's on the ground now, so we'll send a signal to that thing up in space and ask it where he is. And the thing in space, if it had any sense, would say, that's none of my business. He's not in space anymore. He's landed in the ocean in his little capsule and his parachute, his airless parachute at this point. And I'm flying around in orbit up in space. I'm just a satellite. I don't know what goes on. You're asking me what's going on down on the ground, down on your planet. You'd know that better than me. You're at a much better vantage point, you, presumably in ground control, to keep an eye on where this fella is. Do you lose track of him as soon as he falls out of space? Because that's a fucking a bit weird. You can track him all the way to the moon. You can track him around the back of the moon. You can even rescue him if he's in an Apollo thing and he gets into trouble of the other side of the moon. You rescue him somehow and make 18 movies about it. But no, he gets back to Earth and lands on the surface of your sea. And your first thought is, oh, I wonder where he is. We'll ask that satellite that's flying around up in space, nowhere near him. Absolutely fucking ridiculous. That's like if you sent up a... If everything that you sent up into space was just a mirror pointed back at her. Now that would be useful if you sent a mirror far enough out into space and you pointed it back at Earth, and then you looked into the mirror from here, from the ground, then you might get a look at the Earth uh, during the dinosaur era. You might be able to see some live dinosaurs in the mirror. Perhaps that would be useful. But no, apart from that, no. There's no other reason to be pointing mirrors at space or in space or having satellites going around tracking what's on the ground. The satellites could, should be tracking what's out beyond the beyond the beyond. Or maybe they shouldn't be tracking anything at all. Has that occurred to you? It probably hasn't. It hasn't occurred to me either because I don't see why they shouldn't be tracking anything. It's not against the law to track things. Well, it might be against the law to spy on you, perhaps, I don't know. But just in general, as a general thing, as a generality, it's not against the law to track things, especially things in space, and especially things from space. It's not, it's not against the law to try and find your, your astronaut who's fallen, from, uh, who's fallen in a parachute down from the moon and he's landed in the sea. It's not illegal to try and track him. It should be, in fact, it's probably illegal not to, if he's, especially if you're NASA. If he's your employee and he's come back from a business trip that involves landing in the sea with a dinghy and a floating thing and a parachute and you don't go try and find him where he is and rescue him from the sea, Ah, then that's he could probably take a he could probably bring you to an employee trade union uh some sort of thing and have you get you in trouble. He could bring you up in front of an employer disciplinary censorship board and say, These people they sent me off on this business trip. They looked after me all the way. We had a bit of trouble when we were going round the moon. We tried to do a slingshot round the moon and there was some problem, but we got out of it. And then we got back to Earth and then they said, this vehicle, it's not capable of landing. So you're going to have to put on a parachute, 
will have parachute on the vehicle and then just drop it into the sea. Then just make your way home from there. That's what they said. No, that would be unreasonable. That's unreasonable. If that's the thing with these NASA people, whoever's controlling the, I don't know what the rules are for employees as to how to look after your staff in America. For a party, you can send them all the way up in space in a thing that's likely to burn up on its way out of the atmosphere and on its way into the atmosphere and that's all perfectly fine but if you land them in the sea and then you don't come and get them that's the problem you say oh no he can't make his way home from a fucking thing in the middle of the pacific he can find his way home from the moon to earth where there aren't even any oh there aren't even any signs there isn't even a system of navigation up in space there's no satellites to track you or anything but no you plop them down in the sea and you leave them there and then yours could be in awful trouble I think it's because I don't know what I'm getting at here but suffice to say no suffice to say it's not okay to just leave them floating in the sea not anyone was planning to or they maybe they were I don't know I don't know. I presume at one point they were going to leave the Apollo people hanging around the moon in the broken down vessel. If they couldn't fix it, they would have had to leave them there. I was like that fella. There was this fella on, uh, what is it called? Air crash investigations. There was some famous golfer. Some famous American golfer whose name I don't know, but who's apparently famous. Uh, something went wrong with his private jet and they couldn't figure out why he wasn't landing so they went up and they sent a fighter jet up to look at his private jet and the windows were all fogged up and the, the plane was going on autopilot so they just followed it until it crashed they said there's nothing we can do about this fella his windows are all fogged up so he assumed he can't breathe maybe there's no air in there or maybe he's just lost I don't know we're just going to follow him and the air crash investigator said Oh, this is the first time in the history of my job that I've been able to arrive at the air crash scene before the crash has happened. Isn't it absolutely fantastic? Oh, oh, oh. oh, he thought that was hilarious. He didn't express it like that. He didn't say, I think that's hilarious. And he didn't say, ho, ho, ho at the end of it. Although maybe he did and they edited it out for the program. Uh, if you're going to say that, you better make damn sure that Christ has held that whoever's editing the program is on your side and they're not going to use it against you. If you're going to bohain a little ho 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 after you talk about the plane crash that you're supposed to be investigating, you better be 100% confident that whoever is producing that program is prepared to edit out your ho 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 and that they're not some sort of tabloid scum journalist who's going to quote you on every little sound you make, regardless of whether they think you're serious or not. You better be damn sure to hell as Christ is that. And if you're that sure of everything, then why in the name of Christ did you not save your man before he crashed? You were at the scene before he crashed. Why didn't you stop him? You always go on about how your air crash investigation system is all about preventing crashes. He didn't prevent that crash at all. He just watched your man flying at his death. Flying in a straight line until he ran out of fuel and then he just plummeted somewhere. Absolutely fucking ridiculous. That's the most ridiculous program on the planet, an air crash investigation. Yeah, the fella on once. This wasn't on air crash investigation. It was on a documentary made in the same style, though. You got an old plane and the investigator says, I want to crash this plane on purpose in a valley somewhere just to see what happens when it crashes. Uh, so he got himself a parachute and he got into the pilot's cab and he flew this big 737 jet or something and then when they got to the valley he went out through the back door and through the cargo and jumped out of the plane and then they watched the plane crash just for fun uh, just to see if they could figure anything out from crashing an old plane to see what happens when plane crashes get a bird's eye view of a plane crashing absolutely fucking ridiculous Fucking ridiculous. And of course then they were wondering after that why the why the total number of plane crashes that year went up by one instead of down by several, which you would certainly hope would happen when you when you successfully investigate a crash by crashing a jet. Maybe they didn't count that plane as a crash because they did it on purpose and it was empty. So then when they when they improved their rates by saving one or two crashes a year, then they had a net a net decrease in crashes. I don't I don't know. How do you 
how do you measure whether you've prevented crashes? You go around counting how many shitty pilots there were and how many shitty planes and ask them, how many times would you normally expect to crash on a year like this? And if you crash less times or more times than you would expect to in a normal year, because uh, you want to be, you want a customer satisfaction survey when you're doing a job as valuable as that. Otherwise, what's the point? If you can't measure whether you're having an effect, what's the bloody point? If you're a fireman and you can't find out how many lives you've saved, uh, then you might as well just say, oh, I just do nothing then. If the net effect is, what does that even mean? I don't know. I don't know. I've left it a bit late in the day today uh, to record, so my caffeine is wearing off. I don't know if it's obvious. Maybe it is. Uh, maybe it is. Anyway, on with the show. Have a comment, question or topic request? Email Neil anytime, studio at intoyourhead.ie. Remember, we value the opinions of you, the humble and ignorant listener. Two littlest hobos walk into a bar. One of the littlest hobos goes straight up to the bar counter and says, Hello, can I have a pint of your finest Guinness, please? And the man behind the bar says, No, I don't think so. I don't think so, sir. I don't think I don't think you can have a pint of my finest Guinness or any of my Guinness for that matter. I don't think so. And the littlest hobo says, May I ask why? And the man behind the bar says, I think we all know why, sir. I think we all know why. You're the littlest hobo and I'm a little person. I'm a little barman in here, just a little barman in here trying to run a bar. I've been warned about you. Uh, Well, I say I've been warned. You warned me about you by carrying the name littlest hobo. So I know straight up front what your motivation is, your littlest I don't pick care about the hobo part, that's fine. I presume hobo just means you're a dog who's homeless or something. In fact, is hobo what people call homeless people in some countries? I think maybe it is. Maybe I should look that up. But this is a bar. Suffice to say, no, I don't think you can have a pint of my finest Guinness. Or any other kind of Guinness for that matter. And the littlest hobo says, so that means you're hoboist, doesn't that, you're... Uh, you're prejudiced against me. I've barely spoken a word yet and you've already decided that I'm literalist. Just because of my name. It isn't even my name. It's just the name of the program. I'm, that's not my name. I'm a, I'm a homeless dog. I don't have a name. A name is just what people call me. Most of the time they just say, Here, doggy, 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 doggy. Nobody knows my name. It's really weird that people even know that I'm... The littlest hobo. Now, how does that work exactly? Because I go from town to town and somehow I'm known as the littlest hobo. Do people go, oh, I must look up. I don't know what type of dog that is. I'll take a photograph of it and then I'll do an image search on Google on my phone and it'll turn up and it'll say, that's the littlest hobo. That's what that is. And they just assume, apparently they just assume that if they says littlest hobo, that means I'm anti-little people. If I said racist hobo, would you assume that I meant I was against black people? He probably would. Not occurring here that maybe I'm a black dog and I'm racist against white people. And the man behind the bar says, Sir, what in the name of Christ? What in the name of Jesus Christ are you going? This made a lot more sense in that previous segment that he accidentally deleted. And the dog says, I know that, I know that. It's very hard to do the same thing all over again from scratch and reproduce it. And that's not really how this program works. This program is supposed to be original thoughts on the fly. And the man behind the bar says, Oh, the fly, is it? You're on about flies now, is it? You've some issue with flies. I suppose they're even smaller than... They're even smaller than me, so you're a huge problem with flies. The fact that they're small. You think, oh, that's a tiny little fly. They're probably scared. To be fair, there's a lot to be afraid of in something the size of a fly. It could it could fly up your nose and you're never quite sure whether you've inhaled a fly or not. And you're thinking for the rest of the night, uh, should I pick my nose and see if it comes out? Or should I pick my nose and just not look at what comes out and just hope that if there's a fly up there, it's come out? 
That's what you're thinking. And then the littlest hobo will say, Oh, you're showing your true colours now there. You're accusing me of being littlest because you think I'm prejudiced against you, a small barman. But now you're going on about how you're even more littlest than me because you're against tiny little flies that are much smaller. And the barman says, that doesn't make me more littlest than you. If, if anything, it makes you more littlest than me. Because if you have a problem with something my size, but you don't have a problem with flies, but I'm, I have a problem with flies, but I'm fine with something your size, that means I'm only prejudiced against the very, 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 very small stuff. You're prejudiced against stuff that, like me, that's not even on the way to being as small as a fly. I'm just a smaller than average person, and you're again, you have a problem with me. You're a littlest against me, but then you're trying to accuse me of being littlest just because I have a problem with a fly that's small enough to get up my nose. No, no, I'm far less littlest than you. I'm fine with anything that's bigger than a fly. You're against anything that's my size or smaller. Christ almighty, you know, you've got a fucking... I think this guy, you go around from town to town here now and you get all... Oh, you get all this praise because of all your... Whatever you do, I don't know what it is you do. Do you help people or something? Is that it? And the littlest hobo says, wait a minute now, hold on a minute. Did we start this segment with two little... Oh no, we did. I'm trying to remember, am I supposed to be the littlest hobo in the bar? Because if I wasn't, then this wouldn't make sense. Well, it does make sense, that's why. So you can delete this part of the thing where I'm trying to remember whether this was a littlest hobo walks into a bar story. Because it was, it was. So we can continue on from here. Edit, 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 edit. This is an edit point. Edit, edit, edit. And the man behind the bar says, Sir, I think you're thinking too much about your television program. If you're worrying about where you're going to edit everything, Jesus Christ. Well, you relax, relax. You're like one of those travel programs where they go around and you think everything they do has to be about making their documentary. You go, oh, there's that dog. And the dog goes, what do you mean they'll go, but there's that dog. And the apartment says, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think I'm fucking this segment up. That's what I think. And the littlest hobo says, why? Well, this, if you're fucking this segment up, then you're fucking my whole series up. Because I'm part of a program where I go to a different town every week. And if you fuck up part of my series, one one episode of my series, that's a whole segment of my journey you've ruined. Uh, so I'm probably off course for the next several episodes then. I've probably got people chasing me thinking I'm, I've got leprosy or something because I ring my bell. And then I've got, and the man behind the bar says, have you been ringing your bell, sir? And the littlest hobo says, yes, I have. I've been ringing my, I got it. They gave me a bell the last town that I was in. I said, oh, I'm not sure about this, but I'll humour them. I'll give it a try. So I put the bell around my neck and started walking. And I said, I'll ring my bell every minute or two. And I noticed that the bell was rattling just as I walked along. Bell was just ringing all the time. So having a bell ringing all the time is of no value at all. You might as well have no bell at all. It's like if you have a car with a horn on it, but the horn is stuck, so it's stuck on beeping. So you're just going beep, 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 nonstop, 24-7. That's not going to get you anywhere. And the man behind the bar says, that's true, that's true. Anyway, would you like a pint of my finest Guinness? Forget whether you'd already asked for one and I denied you because you're the littlest hober. I'm beginning to think there's more to you than the littlest thing at the moment, so I'm going to try and keep an open mind which is more than you do to me. And the littlest hobo says, well, at least I'm not prejudiced against a fly that gets stuck up your nose. I mean, Jesus Christ, if a cat got stuck up your arse by accident because you sat on it, will you decide you have some problem with cats then? That's fucking ridiculous. You're, you're blaming the victim. That's victim shaming is what you're doing there. If you inhale a fly... You're the problem, not the fly. The problem is you're, this is if the fly was here millions and millions and millions of years before you. A fly is happily flying around in a space that you've managed to build a bar around and you've enclosed it in this space without even consulting the fly. This was the fly's property long before we humans ever existed. It was open spaces and you built the, what's that Billy Joel song? Well, I mean, that's what it reminds me about. Because the flies are the equivalent of uh, the narrator in that Billy Joel song, No Man's Land. It goes something like, 
who remembers when the hall began out here in no man's land. Uh, it's not a very well-known song, but suffice to say it's about, oh, it's about what the suburbs were like before anything got built in them, before they brought in all their cinemas and shopping centres and things, and before they brought in the pubs that they where they build a, a pub building around a, around a space that would normally be full of flies that can fly freely around. And you just built your bar around it. And the Billy Joel song goes something like, How's it go? Well, the lyrics don't really matter that much. Suffice to say, he says, Who who remembers when the hall began? Out here in no man's land. Before they launched their marching plans. Out here on land and the stuff about. Ah, stuff about. Now we're going to get the close circuit. Now we're going to get the prime time. Now we're going to get the sports franchise. Everybody's all excited about it. That's up to, and the man behind the bar says, that's fucking ridiculous. That's for, you're trying to bring a Billy Joel song, trying to fashion a Billy Joel song into some narrative about how I've taken over the spare empty spaces from some fly. Some fly that was born about three minutes ago and has no memory of what this place was like before the bar was built. As far as the fly is concerned, the bar is the universe. He's probably spent half of his three-minute life trying to figure out trying to figure out if there's anything outside of the known universe, and the known universe to him is the, ah, uh, just this bar top here. Well, there is nothing outside of this known universe, fly. Uh, but if you want to find out properly, uh, go and have a sniff of this alcohol-soaked cloth uh, I'll swatch you with. Or maybe I'll swatch you with a newspaper. That's the traditional way to deal with a fly. You get a newspaper and you smash it, you smash it up on the fly's head Except you're not really smashing it against the fly's head, because you can't just hit. There's no way. There's no way you can hit a fly on the head. You're hitting the whole fly or nothing, or no fly at all. There's no way to. There's no way to zone in on a particular part of a fly, unless you're using some sort of, ah, oh, some sort of microscopic tools of some sort, and you're a surgeon. In which case, if you're a surgeon and you're dealing with a fly and you just decide to kill a string, you know, miss. Why would a surgeon with microscopic instruments be interacting with a fly in a way that he doesn't want to kill us? That doesn't make any sense at all. That's his Do they operate on flies? I know I don't I don't mean I don't mean do people bring their flies to a vet and have them operate on to save their lives. No no. I just mean is there someone experimenting on flies? Because they experiment on rats and things. They do uh they they experiment they do brain surgery on rats. Why wouldn't they do on a fly? Maybe because it's too small. Maybe that's why. But maybe surely to Christ there's ways to if you have these sur these surgeons are supposedly very accurate people with steady hands and they can operate on anything small and they can clip a blood vessel or find little veins and connect bits of your brain to other bits of your brain. Surely the Christ, a, a fly isn't too much for them. Surely you can put a, oh, put a big magnifying glass in front of it. I don't know. Surely they can do microscopy stuff on the fly. And then there'll be a lot to learn. If you can learn how to save a fly's life through surgery, the world is our oyster then. If you get to the point where mending medical science where surgeons can operate on the fly, and do a, a meaningful surgery on them that saves their life, uh, then there's nothing they can't do. As far as, so maybe they should be doing that. That's why we should be operating on flies. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's not that I want to save the fly's life or anything or improve the fly's life in any way. It's just if we can operate on flies, that's a, that's a good challenge to get us. It's like the way I don't think we should be going to Mars. Where if we go to Mars, he might learn stuff that advances humanity, so we do it anyway. I don't think we should be saving flies' lives. Where if we perform surgery on flies, we have you to, to seeing if their lives can be saved, and that'll help us progress medical science. I suppose so. And, uh, Ah, oh, the littlest hobo says, so you're saying we learn how to perform brain surgery, for example, on the fly. That'll somehow help us with brain surgery on humans. And the man behind the bar says, well, when you put it like that, it sounds a bit silly. I think it's a lot more. Uh, if there was a choice between hitting a fly over the head with a, 
uh, where an implement such as a rolled up newspaper, which you can't really do accurately because you're hitting the whole fly. You know, if you're hitting a fly with a newspaper and you say, oh, I slapped that fly on the head and knocked it out good. You're kidding yourself. You're lying to yourself. You didn't smack that fly in the head. You just smacked the whole fly. The whole fly and nothing but the fly all in one go. And stop fooling yourself that you've done some accurate thing where you smacked it on the head. He did not. He smacked the whole fly. You don't even know how the fly dies when you do that. You could be hitting it on the balls of its feet and uh, making its legs disappear up into its legal, legal cavity. So basically squashing the legs up into the fly. So they, so like your house, oh, like if the... It's like if someone came along and smacked a joint newspaper into you, but you're so small and they're so big and the newspaper's so big that they don't know what part of you they're hitting with. They could be hitting you on the top of the head. They might get lucky and hit you on the top of the head and that'll knock you out. But they also might. For all they know, they could be hitting you on the the balls of your feet and they could be pushing your feet with such pressure that your legs go up inside your up inside your torso and you die that way. Or they could be hitting you on the on the back and then they could be making you bend so far that your chest goes out that way and the rest of your body goes the other way and they basically bend you to death. They have no idea what way they're killing you. If a joint kills you with a joint rolled up newspaper, they have no way to know of knowing what way they're killing you. All they know is you're there one minute and the next minute you're gone. And it's the same with us human beings and a fly. So that's why it might be worthwhile learning how to operate on a fly because it'll help us with other stuff. We can, we can learn to be that accurate and, ah, you know what I mean. It's better than just smashing the fly to death anyway, isn't it? Yeah. And the littlest hobo says, Ah, you're a fucking weirdo, sir. You're a fucking weirdo. I think I'm ready to go on to my next town now. I mean, Jesus Christ Almighty. You're a man in a bar and you're telling me a little dog who helps everyone. Telling me, oh, I'm not going to go on. I'm not going to enter. I'm not going to go into what you're telling me. Suffice to say, you're telling me all that. And it's fucking ridiculous. That's what it is. You're fucking making, I think what you're trying to do. You've you've heard that I'm the littlest hobo and you're afraid to, you'd want to just kick me out of the bar, but here I'm afraid that the people who've heard about the littlest hobo coming to help the town, you're afraid they'll think that I'm just trying to, oh, you're afraid they'll blame you for not letting me stay long enough to help whoever I'm here to help, because I haven't announced who I'm here to help yet. If you know what's that, that's because you haven't realised who I'm here. It's the beginning of the episode. I don't know what I'm in this town for yet. I've just arrived. No doubt at some point I'll find out someone who needs help and I'll help them. But if you send me off now into the next town before I've even done anything, then there's going to be people in this town who will hold it against you for the rest of your life. They'll hold it against you for the rest of your life and you need to bear that in mind. And they're they're prepared to let me stay for the hour because they, they know I'm littlest but they've made a calculation where they say that hobo who's against little people, he's also quite good at helping people so he'll put up with his littleism for an hour or so. We'll try, we'll keep him away from little people and warn them not to go near him because he's a cunt but he serves a purpose so we'll let him stay for a day or two in the town till he helps someone and then you go off into the next episode I suppose he could have got Lassie instead but Lassie isn't a hobo Lassie if I understand correctly Lassie has a home or does he wait does Lassie have a home I'm not sure now I know he has some there's some kid who he'd be friends but does he live with the kid and his family or is he homeless I'm not sure and then there's Skippy uh, Skippy belonged to someone, I'm not sure. Skippy's a fucking kangaroo, so uh, it's unlikely that he'd be here in this story. Is it? Unless this story is set in Australia, is it? I don't think it is. We don't usually state where the story is set, other than in a bar. Uh, surely if this was set in Australia, he'd have said, can I have a pint of your finest fosters, please? And then everyone would break down in laughter. They'd say, fosters, that's a fucking stereotype if ever, if ever I heard one. Well, everyone's fine with the Guinness. They say, oh no, you can say a pint of your finest Guinness, please, in your Irish accent. And no one thinks, no, that's fucking, that's insulting. They might as well say Paddy Irishman walked into a bar and, no, no, but it's for hell no. But no, if you come along and say, Gippy walks into a bar and says, can I have a pint of your fo- finest fosters, please? 
Adrian will say, that's fucking ridiculous. You can't say that. Uh, I remember uh, this is me, the narrator, talking now. Uh, not not the narrator of the Littlest Hobo television program. The, the narrator of this podcast. If you back up two levels from where we are now, because you're in the middle of a skippy thing being talked about by a, uh, by the Littlest Hobo in a bar, in a two Littlest Hobos walk into a bar story in a podcast. Uh, you go back back up a few levels to where to, until you're at the the fella say doing the podcast and that's me the narrator so that's me now who's talking uh i remember once went on i went on holidays to spain we had our holiday oh, we had our holiday apartment broken into uh someone smashed open the safe and they smashed open the press that the safe was in i didn't take anything out of the safe just left us but removed a box of fosters that were sitting in the kitchen press i don't think it was even refrigerated at the high have imported from ireland so they stole that uh, so i don't know where maybe that's entertaining to you or maybe it is entitled maybe it needs a bit more i've been developing that story since i was about 18 uh it was some time ago, so it's probably maybe I should develop it further before I use it on air. I just came up because Foster's came up. Anyway, on with the show. Two returning NASA astronauts from the Apollo 24 moonlander walk into a bar. One of the returning astronauts goes straight up to the bar counter and says, Hello, could I have a pint of your finest Guinness, please? And do you have a telephone that I could use? I need to, I need to phone home, so to speak. As, as E.T. might say, had he arrived in the same way as I did. Oh, 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 that's a little joke for you. And the man behind the bar says, Certainly, sir. But are you not still on duty? Should you be drinking if you haven't been, even been rescued yet, presumably? Because you're still, you've still got a parachute trailing after you. Hope it worked a bit better than it's working now while you were flying down through the air. Well, presumably it did. Unless that's the... Did you have a second backup parachute and the one that's flopping down behind you on the ground was just the first one that failed? And the parachute says, I don't think you know what the fuck you're talking about, barman. Uh, no offence or anything. But the reason the parachute is trailing after me on the ground is because it was successful. It landed me on the ground... And then it emptied of air and then it flopped back on the ground because they don't want it. They don't want it building up a current again and be go taking off again. Happy like like your man did. Oh, that happened with your man, Richard Branson. He, he did that. He did that flying across on a balloon across the Atlantic thing. And then he was running out of steam over Northern Ireland and he got out in his parachute. And he landed on the ground. He got right down to the ground. He landed on some, some farmer's ground in Northern Ireland. But then he took off again in the parachute. Ended up going, flying up, back up into the air again. Oh no, that was the balloon, not the parachute. But still, the whole point of a parachute is it needs to empty out when you get to the ground so you don't take off again. You don't ever want to be taking off in a parachute. It's very difficult to control. You could end up, oh, you could end up somewhere else. And then you don't know where you are. That's why I've always wondered about these parachutes, uh, barman. How do people know where they're going to land? I don't know. Haven't really had much time to think about it because I'm just back from Mars. I've been on this long trip on Apollo 24. And you would imagine that a big part of the trip would be planning for the fact that I'm going to land in a parachute in the middle of the sea somewhere, conveniently close to this bar. But no, that was a very, that was a very small proportion of my training because there was so much else going on. Because uh, during the trip itself, we had to go to Mars and back. There was all this stuff going on in space. So the end of the trip was basically just an afterthought. Uh, luckily, I was, luckily, I was a parachutist before I became an astronaut, so I was perfectly fine. I know what I'm doing, so I'm landed here. Uh, as I say, I just need to, I just need to phone home, as they say, like like ET. I go ET, phone home, ho 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 ho. So anyway, yes, can I use your phone, please? And the man behind the bar says, certainly, sir. Uh, now, uh, here's the here's the phone. Uh, just t- uh, tap. Uh, just tap in the pin code before you start, because my phone is locked. Uh, the pin code is, fuck off you cunt. And the astronaut says, I beg your pardon. 
the, the barman says, oh, I was just saying my phone is locked, so before you use it, you have to type in the pin to access it, to unlock it, before you can dial your number. And uh, as I say, the pin number is, fuck off, you cunt. And uh, the astronaut says, it is some sort of a joke, because I'm not seeing the light side of it. Seems to be just an opportunity for you to claim to be doing a joke, but just to tell an astronaut he's just being lit literally to Mars and back to fuck off and that he's a cunt. That seems a bit much. And the astronaut says, well, excuse me, young man. You think just because you've been to Mars and back because you've been into space that somehow means you have to have the automatic adoration of every human being on the earth. Well, some of us don't like Mars, and some of us don't like the fact that you're making friends with the Martians. Some of us find it rather obscene and offensive. Uh, Some of those Martians, uh, for all we know, could have been bombing our country billions of years ago. Some of them might have wiped out the dinosaurs. Uh, Now you might think, oh, the dinosaurs were no great loss, they're these scary creatures. Well, they weren't scary in those days, I can tell you. They're only scary to us because of scale, because they're 50 times the size of the average human. Uh, But if we'd been made to the same scale as the dinosaurs, and we happened to live in the same era on which they dominated the Earth, then we'd have been a lot less scared of them. Uh, We'd probably have made pets out of them, or they'd have made pets out of us. We'd be like their dogs. We'd be going around going, Hello, dinosaur, I'm your best friend and dog. Except I'm a human. I'm not a dog, I'm a human. But in this era of the dinosaurs, a human is a pet. Uh, we might even be bigger than the dinosaurs. We have dogs now that are quite big. I know most of them aren't, aren't as big as your, uh, your average adult uh, human. But humans also have ponies and horses as pets sometimes. And those are, those are bigger than humans. So there's no reason why a, why a dinosaur couldn't have had a human pet who's bigger than a dinosaur. Uh, and for all we know, maybe the dinosaurs were very small and their fossils he might have bet you, I'll bet you we're going to find out one of these days that when fossil, one of the things that happens to fossils when they sit in the ground for billions of years is that they swell up and become 50 times bigger than they actually originally were. Why wouldn't they? A fossil. A fossil is basically a hollowed out space inside a rock that used to be occupied by bone. So there's no reason why you shouldn't swell up be some sort of greenhouse gases fill up and occupy the space and then push it out and make the fossil bigger. I don't know. Maybe that's the case. And the astronaut says, are you quite finished, sir? And the barman says, oh, yes, I am, I am. I was only joking about the phone. It's over there. It's an old payphone over there. Uh, now, you probably haven't got much change with you. You probably, I'm assuming you don't travel with a lot of spare coins when you're going to the moon and back and Mars and back. Because I know they weigh everything. I know when they went to the moon, they weighed everything and they planned for every ounce of rock that they were going to build, bring back from the moon. They said, how much rocks are you picking up? And they go, I'm sure you find the rocks that together add up to exactly 742 ounces, no more and no less. In fact, half the time they spent on the moon, they were going out trying to find rocks that weighed exactly that much. I don't know if you've ever tried weighing a rock on the moon in the late 1960s. It's quite difficult. It's quite difficult, especially when you're the first person who's ever done it. And nobody's figured out quite how it works yet. All the non-gravity and stuff. Because they have basically no air there. You put something down on the weighing scales over there and straight away starts floating away. Both the weighing scales and the rock start to float away. You probably have to do something that involves measuring which is floating away faster. The, the rock or the weighing scales and then you get out a calculator. Of course the pilots would be very good at that. Pilots, uh, the pilots who become astronauts, they're well used to doing calculations. Every time you take off in a plane of any kind, you have to calculate how much weight is on the plane. And how fast are we, what's going to be our takeoff velocity and how far we down the runway will we be before we're able to lift off? So the people who landed on the moon, they're no stranger to that sort of thing. Unless, of course, they're one of the astronauts who didn't happen to be a former 
pilot. Uh, maybe your one, your one who was a teacher, and she became uh, she became an astronaut on the Challenger. Although they never made it to the moon, were they even going to the moon? I don't think so. Uh, well, I don't know. But they blew up just as they were. You probably don't want to hear this story. Sir, an astronaut. Wait, am I the barman talking around me? I, the astronaut, have lost track. Christ, I wouldn't be much use on, on a spaceship, would I? I can't even keep track of where, which person I am in this dialogue. Oh, ho, oh, oh, I hope I'm not the astronaut, am I? And the man behind the bar says, no, you are the astronaut. Oh, no, wait a minute. You're not, I'm not sure. I'd have to listen back to the segment. I'm not sure whose turn it was to talk and which, which of us was saying all that. Fabi, just, let's just leave it. Let's just leave it. People can figure it out themselves. As the people who are listening to this are probably paying more attention to it than we are. It was understandable. One of us is just literally falling out of the sky on a parachute and landed in the middle of the sea and somehow found this bat. Oh, by the way, is that, did you land in the sea? Because we're in a bar, you're in my bar now. Did you just land in the middle of the sea and manage to make your way all the way to this bar? And you're only now thinking of calling your employer. Is that what happened? What were you going to do if you weren't very near land? Were you just going to uh, vote a message in a bottle or something? And Glastonaut says, oh, no, no, you misread read this situation, sir. I was already in contact with them when I landed. Or they were with me anyway. Or was wearing a signal thing that they could pick up on the satellite. The satellite spotted me and then they sent the signal down to ground control. They said, your man's down there. He's at these coordinates. And they sent a message back to me via the satellite saying, that's fine. Make your own way to the nearest town. Use that little dinghy you've got. It'll help build up your muscles again because you've been away for several weeks uh, in zero gravity and you're... Your muscles are basically, they haven't been in use at all. And when that happens, your your muscles are completely useless. The only way to get them working again is by exercise. So they said, roll your little dinghy there until you get to the coastline and then ring us from a nearby bar. Uh, So I said, that's fine, I'll do that. Uh, It took me a while to get going, I can tell you. Luckily, the, the sea and the water in the sea is quite buoyant. So I was able to just float for a while as I figured out how to get my my hands working again. And then eventually I was able to swim. And I got stronger and stronger as a swimmer. Uh, by the time I'd figured out how to swim at my full normal rate, I was, I was basically nearly here. And then there was here. So then I got to the, I got to the beach and I saw a bar up here. Well, I didn't see the bar. I saw the building. I saw the outside of a building which on close examination I could assess was probably a bar, because it said bar on a sign above the entrance. It said, this is a bar. And then there was another sign on the door that says, this is the door that leads into a bar, unless you're coming at it from the opposite side, in which case it's the door that leads into the outside world. Although not quite as outside as the outside world that I've just returned from by parachute. No, no. Uh, thankfully not, because I don't, I don't think I'm quite ready to go into zero gravity, zero air land again just yet. Uh, no, no. Anyway, can I have a pint of your finest Guinness, please? I hear to give that to people who've just given blood, because it's good for you. Uh, as I believe the advertisements used to say in the 1950s, they said, Guinness is good for you. Drink Guinness and have loads of cigarettes. That's what he used to say. Uh, I'll pass on the cigarettes. We'll have a pint of Guinness, please. And the man behind the bar says, Ah, uh, sir, I'm not serving a pint of Guinness to a man who's just fallen out of the sky. Would you? Don't be fucking ridiculous. I've called an ambulance. I'm going to tell the, I'm going to tell the ambulance people to give you the once over and make sure you're still alive and make sure there's nothing wrong with your brain. Uh, cause you've been going around in zero oxygen for, for several weeks. And by the way, you say you're up in space for several weeks. Uh, my understanding is that getting to Mars takes about a year or something like that or at least six or seven months depending on the positioning of the planets at the time how did you manage to do it in several weeks and the astronaut says oh i made a mistake there i wasn't i didn't go to mars i went to the moon a force of habit really because i was supposed to be going to mars but uh 
Yang, I was planning on going to Mars. We're forced to, We're so used to going to the moon or trying to go to the moon. We've been doing it for 50-odd years. Some of the technicians down on ground control, uh, just out of basically out of muscle memory, they had all controls set to send me to, to moon instead of Mars. And tell you, it was quite a surprise when I saw the moon coming up in my in my front view mirror, I can tell you. Uh, now, I know what you're thinking. What in the name of Christ would a front view mirror be? Well, it's the opposite of a rear view mirror. Because if you're in a, sometimes if you're in a rocket ship like I was, it's advantageous to sit facing the back, facing the opposite direction to the direction in which you were going. And if that's the case, it's appropriate to have a front view mirror. It's a mirror outside of the, well, sometimes it's outside of the back uh, the back passenger seat window or sometimes it's in the middle of the back window and it's pointing the front so you can see what's outside of the front windscreen in the mirror. And the man behind the bar says, well, obviously, it's fairly obvious, I think, to anyone with her brain what her front view mirror would be, even if you never heard of one before. I mean, for self-explanatory front view mirror, Clearly, it's the opposite of a back view mirror. And your astronaut says, well, not exactly the opposite, no. Because the opposite of a of a rear view mirror would be a mirror that's is showing, I don't know, maybe now, I don't know. Because there's different ways of doing opposites, you see. Whereas the opposite of a front view mirror it could be showing you a view of the back. So it could be, or it should be, could be showing you, it should, could be showing an image of you uh, to whoever's outside at the front of the car. Oh no, I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe I'm overthinking it. And the man behind the bar says, Indeed you are. Indeed you are. Anyway, good morning. <laughs>